I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. On this episode of Newt's World, we have a special treat. My new book, March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, comes out on June 6th. And my co-author, Joe Gaylord, who was absolutely central to our ability to elect the first majority in 40 years and our ability to get re-elected for the first time in 68 years, has agreed to spend some time on this podcast talking about how we did it, why we wrote the book together. Joe is the former executive director of the National Republican Congressional Committee. He's been my longtime political advisor, one of my closest friends. He's with me every step of the way, both through the contract with America and then for the four years of getting Bill Clinton to sign conservative reform. He teaches a course on campaign management at the University of Iowa and has just been amazingly central to everything I've ever done politically. Joe, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Newt. Our new book, March the Majority, is available for pre-order right now, so it's kind of exciting. I found developing the book, going through the research, laying out the 16 years where we worked together trying to get a majority, then the four years where we did succeed in getting Clinton to sign an amazing amount of conservative reforms, that it was both exhausting, but it also brought up a lot of memories. So Let me start from the standpoint of your life and the way in which you got involved in politics as a small-town kid from Illinois who went to the University of Iowa and then found yourself having a very active role in the Iowa Republican Party. So start with how you became a Republican. (laughs) So I was raised in a primarily Democratic household. I had an uncle who was a union steward. My aunt was a postmaster who was appointed by Harry Truman. And so everything kind of revolved around that. And I was very interested in politics. We talked about current events a lot at home. And I got very involved in watching the Democratic National Convention in 1960. And I was a huge fan 
of John F. Kennedy, primarily because he was a Catholic and I was a Catholic and I thought it would be great to have a Catholic president. So everybody in my high school always thought that I was a big Democrat. But as I got into debate in my junior year, I was on the negative side of educational grants to elementary and secondary schools to increase the quality of education. (laughs) A lot of our research work came out of Barry Goldwater's Conscious of a Conservative, and I became a little more conservative just from having read and used that book so often in debate. And then I went to the University of Iowa, and my senior year, Molly and I were getting married three weeks after I graduated, and so I'd signed up for the placement service at the university. I had missed an interview with Hallmark Cards in Kansas City, and that was the cardinal sin of the placement service. And Helen Barnes, who was the director of the service, gave me a call and just read me out over the phone about how I had ruined another student's opportunity, wasted Hallmark's time, and not to mention that I didn't get an opportunity myself. She called me a week later and said, you better come in and talk to me about this. And we had our meeting. And And then a little after that, she called again and said, you know, are you a Republican? And I said, well, would it help? And she said, well, I hope so, because I've sent all of your materials off to the Iowa Republican Party and they want to talk to you. So long story short, Dick Redman, who is the executive director of the Republican Party, called me. We set up a meeting in the Iowa Memorial Union. We talked for an hour. It was unlike any other meeting I'd ever had. And he asked me to come to Des Moines for further interviews. I did that, passed the interview test, and got hired as a field director for the Iowa Republican Party in 1967 and started work two weeks after Molly and I were married on July 1st. And it became a great career. I was in Iowa for eight years, did everything from sweeping out the headquarters to running the multigraph machine to learning how to send out materials for county fairs and all of that sort of stuff, and then got heavily involved in organizational politics in the 72 campaign with the committee to reelect the president. It was the first year for 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds to get the right to vote. And so we did a massive registration drive that I was in charge of and turned out to be one of the most successful programs in the country. And after that, I was off and running. If I remember correctly, the governor at one point said to you, you've learned so much from us, you should be paying us. What he actually said in my interview, Bob Ray was the state chairman at the time that I was hired, and he said, you know so little about politics, you should be paying us for this job instead of us paying you. But I learned rapidly. (laughs) Luckily, it all worked out. And then one of those accidents of fate, the state chair got to be the national chair, and you ended up going to Washington to head up the Republican National Committee's local election campaign division. Was that a surprise to you? Well, there were a couple of things along the way. Actually, it was our national committee woman, Mary Louise Smith, who became the chairman of the Republican National Committee, the first woman to be chair, and was appointed to that job in 1974. Following the 74 election, I was invited to go to Washington, and I accepted the position. Molly and I decided that we would pull up stakes in Des Moines and move to the D.C. area. And I started out doing outreach to voters in special voter groups from 
African Americans to Hispanics to senior citizens to women and to young people. That lasted about a year. And then I ended up teaching and directing the Republican Campaign Management College for campaign managers for congressional, gubernatorial, and U.S. Senate candidates nationwide. And I did that for 16 consecutive weeks and then ran the voter turnout program, the training program, for our 620-some paid phone bank operators in the country for the 76th presidential election. And then Mary Louise did not run for re-election, and Bill Brock was elected, and I became the director of the local election campaign division, which really revolutionized and changed campaigns at the legislative level. By my estimation, we did seminars that trained upwards of 60,000 people, and we added many new wrinkles into state legislative races, including giving national committee money to candidates that were running for local office. The first candidate we ever gave to was Mitch McConnell in Kentucky when he was running for Jefferson County Judge in Louisville. And we gave him a $10,000 contribution in 1977, which was the biggest contribution the National Committee had ever made to a local election candidate. And so over the course of the four years of running the local election division, Number one, when you're running in legislative races, you learn a lot about the country and a lot about what's going on in each state. Secondarily, we doubled the number of legislative chambers that we controlled. We elected more than 700 new state legislators. And part of the both 78 election success and the 1980 election success, I mean, really, really made an enormous difference for Republicans at the local level. You were sort of picking up a nationwide local government, local politics level of knowledge that was pretty remarkable when you then took it over to the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee. You had a base of knowledge that was probably deeper than any executive director had ever had. Well, <laughs> I think that's probably true. Having had my dear wife, Molly, who was involved locally in politics in Iowa and was running and doing precinct caucuses back in those days, and then spent time at the Republican National Committee being very involved in both training and then in building the nationwide voter registration systems. And me working with thousands, literally thousands of state legislative candidates across the country and the staff that put that together provides you with a remarkable knowledge of the flow of the country and what goes on politically and how each state is frankly very different from other states in terms of elections. At least it was back then. Well, I suspect it still is that underneath it, you know, running in Orange County, California is not the same as running in Des Moines or running in New York City. We're a remarkably complicated country. That's really true. That really is true. Because McConnell's playing such a big role this week and such a, I think, remarkably helpful role for the House in deliberately stepping back and making McCarthy the new speaker is sort of the centerpiece of negotiating. That was 45 years ago that you helped him win that race. Yes. I mean, people don't sometimes understand that there's kind of an ecosystem and an organic process, and you can't necessarily know which person you're helping is going to go on, but you do know that if you help enough people, good things start to happen. That's true. 
There are great stories from the local election campaign division talking about how things are so different in different states. But we did in Vermont, for example, $250 contributions to member candidates who were running for the state house. And at the end of the election, one candidate who was elected sent us back change from the $250 contribution that we made because he didn't spend it all. <laughs> well, Vermont was a more frugal place to run than some places. Yeah, much more frugal, yes. So you then move from the RNC's local election division. You go over and start to work for the Congressional Campaign Committee. That was a huge change <laughs> because you had all of your bosses right across the street. First, I was campaign director, and we had obviously, as you all remember, we had a very tough 1982 campaign with the economic unemployment number being about 10.8% just before Election Day. Many Republican incumbents collapsed at that time, and we lost 26 seats in that election. Afterwards, Nancy Sinnott Dwight, who was the executive director, left the committee and I went to Congressman Vanderjack and said, I would really like to be executive director now. And he said to me, I know you're qualified to be executive director, but you really have to do one thing for me that's very important. And I said, what's that? And he said, you need to get to know Newt Gingrich. And he said, I just can't deal with him every day. And so you need to do that for me. And I said, well, I'd be glad to do that. I want the job, it would be great. So that's what it started, Newt. Did that turn out to be a little more complicated than you expected? Yeah, but <laughs> then you're a little more complicated than I thought. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. March the Majority will come out on June 6th and is available for pre-order now. But what struck me when we were writing it is how relevant it is today. It's really more like a cookbook or a roadmap for how to both create a majority and how to use that majority to get a Democratic president to sign conservative reforms. But, Joe, what was your sense of its relevance to today? Well, I think it's really important today because it provides, again, a roadmap for how you get things done and how you can get reforms through Congress and how you win elections. Because you can't do anything if you don't win elections. So I think it's important for those two reasons. And I felt that it really did provide a whole set of principled ways for people to think, and that if they do that, they're going to be dramatically more effective, again, in the Reagan tradition. So I just want to remind everyone that March the Majority will come out on June 6th, and it is available for pre-order now. In a very real sense, our partnership began in 83. It did. In January of 1983, you came over to see me and you had a list of 10 things that you wanted from the committee. And I thought, you know, I think I'll probably do all these things. I've always told people that Vanderjack backed me when I'd lost twice. And without his backing, I might not have won. So I won the congressional seat with his support. He then backed me inside the House with the campaign committee. As a freshman, I was made chairman of a brand new committee we invented on long-range planning to get to be a majority. And that gave me access to resources, and it gave me legitimacy to work with Bill Brock, who was the Republican National Committee chair, and to work with the Reagan campaign. So all of those years, from 78 to 94, Vanderjack just kept being supportive in ways that you couldn't quite imagine. That is true. And I think in your 1978 election, I have been told that the House leadership, or particularly Bob Michael, did not want you to be supported by the Congressional Committee. And Guy defied the leadership and provided resources and assistance to your 78 campaign as well. I mean, I don't know whether it was because I had lost twice and they thought that was just investing in a loser or whether it was because I clearly had so many ideas and was so committed to dramatic change that it made the leadership kind of feel very uncomfortable. I think it was a combination of both things. We should be clear with our listeners that when you did step down from the committee and created your own consulting firm, I asked you to take me on as a client. And it turned out by then that I had spent so much time and energy nationally and had been so polarizing because I was such an aggressive partisan Republican that I really needed you to focus on my district. It's conceivable that I could have lost in 90 or 92 in which case I think we might not have ever quite gotten around to a majority. I think that's probably true. Those are both very tough elections. And the 900-plus votes that we won by in 1990, and then the 900-plus votes that we won the primary with in 1992 were pretty closely called elections. You know? <laughs> yeah, and the Atlanta Constitution had figured out who I was, 
Wasn't it something like 23 days in a row they attacked me? Yeah, 23 days in June before the 1992 primary in Georgia, they either ran front page stories, editorials, or cartoons that were all negative about you. And, you know, there was a huge outside effort to defeat you in 1992 in the new district in East Cobb and North Fulton. The Democratic National Committee woman had a press conference and said, this is the only way that we can defeat Newt Gingrich is to vote for and support his Republican primary opponent. And every major labor union maxed out support to our Republican primary opponent, and every Democratic activist got involved in the race. And there was a huge campaign effort on their side to do what they called the boot newt campaign. And it was tough. It was a tough primary. I remember election night, primary election night, sitting there, and we were doing fine in the Republican precincts. And then the Democratic precinct started coming in in a Republican primary, and we were getting killed. That is true. You turned to me and you said, so how are we doing vote goal-wise? And I said, we threw out vote goals an hour ago because there's so many more people that have voted in this primary than we ever thought were going to vote in it. It was an amazing night, and thank God for North Fulton. Both times it came down late at night. I remember, I think it was in the 90 off-year election that we were actually behind. Until Fayette County came in. And Randy Evans, the campaign chairman, kept saying, there are three precincts in Fayette County that will come in at the end. They are all big. They're all for you, and you will end up winning. And my brand-new son-in-law, Paul Ebers, was sitting there about 2 in the morning, and he said, aren't election nights kind of supposed to be fun? (laughs) I said, well, we'll be in a little bit. That night, we looked grim enough that People kept calling me from all over the country saying, are you okay? And Connie Mack, who was running for the Senate, was way behind, but had figured out that between absentee ballots and military ballots, that he would make up something like 120,000 vote margin, which he did, but it took a week. Right. And I think he won in Florida by about 20,000 votes that year. It was a wild run. But then having finally won, I think what people need to realize is that All this time, of course, you have to run every two years to get reelected in the House. And I was pouring almost all of my energy into creating a majority. I really wasn't focused as much on being reelected as I should have been. But on the other hand, if I had focused that much, we wouldn't have gotten a majority. True. That's why it took both of us, I think. That's right. I've always said that we were the inside and outside part of this effort because I could focus on the House itself. And I could focus on sort of recruiting and issue building, but I couldn't focus on all of the various things that had to be happening. For example, at its peak, GOPAC, which Pete DuPont had given me when he decided to run for president, and GOPAC had originally been just a send out checks to local election people. And we decided that ideas mattered more than the money. And at its peak, we had like 55,000 people getting a GOPAC tape every month. And all of that fit into the degree to which you had become the number one trainer in the Republican Party and understood the importance of teaching people and you created the campaign academy, et cetera. How many people would you guess you taught during the process of trying to create a majority? Oh, probably somewhere around seventy or 80,000. People, I think, often don't realize that election night was really exciting, but there were years 
of growing this party, which when we started getting involved in this, I realized, I think in 85, when we had a special election in Texas that we lost by a narrow margin. And I was very upset that we'd lost it. And you sent the guys over who had been in charge to brief me. And after about two hours, I realized, you know, you had 14 counties with no elected Republicans. You had the governor relieving 7,000 state employees to take the day off to work. You had unions coming in from as far away as New Jersey. And it hit me that we were essentially a mid-sized college team trying to play in the Super Bowl, that we just weren't big enough to be a majority. And from that point on, you and I were involved constantly in trying to figure out how do we grow a party big enough and have issues strong enough that we could actually defeat what was the dominant party in the country, which was the Democrats. That's really true. And, you know, part of that education process was with helping Republicans realized that we're involved in the party and candidates who were running for office, that we actually represented a majoritarian opinion in the country, but had been in the minority for so long that we acted like minority candidates. And people and candidates act differently when they understand that the group that they're talking to actually agrees with them. We spent an enormous amount of time at GOPAC trying to get people to understand that we represented majoritarian thought in America. And building that internally was one of the keys to being successful. And in addition to that, we also taught that we had to be a party that made sense, that created news, that was creative in the work that we'd done, that our consultants and our campaign staffs and campaigns become more creative in a way that attracted the amount of attention that challenger candidates needed to attract. And that was certainly true in the 1994 campaign. I always felt like we were standing on Reagan's shoulders. And Reagan, as an FDR Democrat, who as late as 1948 had done commercials for Harry Truman and for Hubert Humphrey, really came out of this background as a movie actor. You know, he was comfortable that he had an audience. He was comfortable that actually his values were the values of the American people. And that made him very different than the anti-Roosevelt Republicans. I think we're still on the same struggle between people who believe that we represent the natural majority that favors the Constitution and the Pledge of Allegiance and so forth, and those who think that we somehow have to fake it because we're actually not a majority. And I think that those two approaches are so dramatically different. And our success in creating We Are the Majority tapes and getting people, a lot of people, I mean, John Boehner as a candidate who would eventually become speaker, the governor of New York at that time, who as an assembly member ran around the state listening to GOPAC tapes, the number of people who would say that these tapes enabled them to feel that they could comfortably debate and run in a way that was really very, very different. There's no question about that. When we heard all through the 92 and the 94 campaign about the impact of the audio tapes of candidates who would listen to them while they were in their cars before they were doing debates or before they were doing public appearances that gave them both courage and stamina and excitement and enthusiasm about getting out there and actually speaking and being a leader. They were terrific and helpful at the time. And they certainly were new in approach and they certainly hit candidates where they were, which is in their cars, most of the time driving to events out across America. I have to say, just so people understand, 
how really thoroughly you understood the country. The, one of my favorite stories is on September 17th, 1994. We're leaving on a private plane to do a swing through five or six states to raise money for candidates. And Dan Meyer, who was my chief of staff and is now Kevin McCarthy's chief of staff, I think the only person to serve as chief of staff to two different speakers. Anyway, Meyer's on the plane along with Steve Hanser and Carrie Knott, who at that time was Dick Army's chief of staff. And I said, because we were going to do planning on the plane in between stops to raise money. Literally, we were still at a national about to take off. And I said, so are we planning for speaker or for minority leader? And you said, well, you better be planning for speaker because you're going to be the majority. And Meyer looked up and said, wait a second, you need to really explain this. And you literally, from memory, started in Maine and went to Hawaii and said we'd pick up 52 seats. You picked up 53. The only seat you missed was Rostankowski in downtown Chicago. And I thought it was one of the most remarkable examples of mastering the business you were in that I'd ever seen. Well, thank you very much for that. The other thing that people really need to understand about the 94 campaign is that we were badly outspent by the Democrats. They had lots of money. And we were not in that position, but we had candidates everywhere, which was really important. And they were very eager and learned very well. And also, they were provided with data and information that strengthened their candidacies. And I'd gotten to know many of them over the course of the year. I knew about their campaigns. I knew what they were doing. I knew what they were trying for. And you could see where there was an opportunity to win in districts that were not usually Republican districts. And so from going from the story in Maine, where a candidate ran totally on the deficit, all the way to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to the changes that were rapidly occurring in the South, where we actually became the majority in the South in the 1994 campaign, to defeating two committee chairmen and defeating the Speaker of the House. I mean, in Washington State, where you had a massive pickup of six seats was really remarkable, but the amount of districts that you had been to or I had been to or we had trained either candidates or campaign staff in made an understanding the way the country works and how America votes really made that possible for me. What did election night feel like to you in 94? Well, at the start of the night, I was really nervous that I had been so confident that we were going to win that it might not happen. And we were all in the Cobb Gallery, and there was like a war room there. And I just said, until we get to the 218 seats, we're not going to announce anything, even though it looked right. We had to have 218 seats called to say that we had won. And I was anxious, and I was excited, and then elated all at the same time, all in the same evening. So, and it was terrific. It was the culmination of a career for me. Back when I was in Iowa and as executive director, I said, you know, someday I want to run one of these national party committees, and it got to be the NRCC. And then it was, someday I want to see a majority, and I want to see the Democrats defeated. And that finally happened. And so it was, in many ways, the culmination of a life's work for me. Since we were being outspent, and we were running a lot of candidates who were really first-time candidates, they were learning the trade while they were doing it, how bigger role do you think that the contract and the issues in the contract played in giving us the sort of extra margin that let us win despite the Democrats being able to outspend us? 
It was huge. And I will say this in this regard. The 10 planks of the contract gave our candidates positive things to say in their debates. It gave them courage. It gave them strength. And they got to say to their Democratic opponents, you have been running this house for so long and you have nothing to show for it right now. And this is what we're going to do if we get elected. And that kind of positivity about what would be done if, in fact, people voted Republican for Congress really helped in building the majority in 1994. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. March the Majority will come out on June 6th and is available for pre-order now. But what struck me when we were writing it is how relevant it is today. It's really more like a cookbook or a roadmap for how to both create a majority and how to use that majority to get a Democratic president to sign conservative reforms. But Joe, what was your sense of its relevance to today? Well, I think it's really important today because it provides, again, a roadmap for how you get things done and how you can get reforms through Congress and how you win elections because you can't do anything if you don't win elections. So I think it's important for those two reasons. Then I felt that it really did provide a whole set of principled ways for people to think, and that if they do that, they're going to be dramatically more effective, again, in the Reagan tradition. So I just want to remind everyone that March the Majority will come out on June 6th, and it is available for pre-order now. You know, one of the things I was struck with as we wrote March to the Majority together, which both covers winning a majority and then covers the four years where we convinced Bill Clinton over and over again to sign conservative reforms, was that, in fact, it was a very principled approach and it was based on having thought through what it would take. And in you, in that process, had developed six keys to building a majority. I think all of them are totally relevant today 
And if the House and Senate Republicans and the Republican presidential candidate understand them, we will be much more likely to win a decisive election in 24. Could you just walk through briefly the six keys? Well, sure. The first was know what you are for, what it is that you are going to do. So what you're going to talk about in the campaign, and we developed back in the 1994 campaign, the theory that 75% of what we should do or 65 to 75% of what we should do and talk about needed to be positive, And then part of it needed to be negative. So this knowing what you are for was really important. And then the second thing was recruiting candidates everywhere and training them in how to utilize the information that was available to them when they were trying to persuade voters to vote for them. And recognizing that there are different techniques that are used to incite your base in an election and also to reach across and reach independent voters because they hear things differently. And so that combination of recruiting and training was very important. Understanding the principles of communication was the third, and figuring out how to do that over, under, and around the national media was very important. And looking at segments of the election that you can reach and get to differently than through the local or national media were important. And fourth was building an army of people with you, building coalitions and the strength that coalitions bring, particularly in local and national endorsements, as well as recruiting volunteers and raising money for campaigns. And then finally, it was important to remember that you had to contrast yourself with opponents. We didn't say fight. We just said you need to create a controversy in the campaign that shows that you are different from what's already there and who's already there to demonstrate to the electorate that you, in fact, not only can do this job, but what it is that you are about to do is going to be important for them and that the other side has failed. You know, it's amazing. I look back on it and I was really reinforced when we did the research and looked at all of our material from that era. This was a very purposeful project. And I always remind people, we failed in 80, 82, 84, 86, 88, 90, and 92. But we kept learning and we kept growing. And it wasn't an accident. And I think that the principles that are in March for the Majority actually can be applied today by the House and Senate Republicans, can be applied at the state legislative level and governor's level can be applied by presidential candidates. I think they're sort of universal principles of how in a free society you bring people together in order to win decisively. And you both were a key part in understanding that and a key part in implementing it, which I would say to everybody was far harder. I think it was literally inconceivable that I could have ever grown a majority without your help. And I think there was the two of us working together as sort of a synergistic team that enabled us over time to both invent the principles and apply them with enough energy that we gradually carried an entire party and ultimately carried a country with us. That's true. Again, I thank you for that and for having the opportunity to be involved in campaigns over the years and to be involved in the one that significantly changed America and changed politics in America. Before the 1994 election, it's important to remember that nobody in the country ever thought the Republicans would be in the majority in the House of Representatives again. It was just a given that Democrats would always control the House. 
And we learned so much in the process. We did so much in the process. As I was doing the research and looking at my notes and things that had gone on in elections and what we had done, in many cases, we had outspent Democrats, but that didn't work. And in many cases, we had left seats vacant because we thought we wouldn't put up candidates against Democratic incumbents who would just be beaten badly because it would only encourage the other side. I mean, we tried all kinds of things during the course of that process. But when we finally ended up in 1994 successfully, we had in fact done the six things that I just mentioned. And it really requires all six. And I think by having done it, people, as you said, I think as late as election day, most Republicans didn't think it was possible. But once we proved it was possible, we kept from 94 to 2006. And when we lost in 2006, there were enough members who now knew they could be in a majority that four years later they came back as a majority and they kept the majority from 2010 to 2018. And instantly, Kevin McCarthy knew that it was possible to be a majority. And you contrast that with the Republican leaders who basically from 1954 on grew increasingly pessimistic and increasingly demoralized. And once you understand it's possible, it's just amazing how it changes the energy level and the donations and candidates. I mean, candidates who are being told, well, why don't you run? You'll be in the minority, but after all, you'll be serving the country, have a different vision of the future than candidates who are told, hey, you know, we can be majority, you can be a chairman, we can get things done. And so you just dramatically improve your candidacy. So I hope people who listen to this decide to get March to the majority, and I hope they realize that what Joe and I did was set a baseline, which... I think it was a genuine historic change in the structure of power in Washington. And we need one more surge of the same kind of change in order to truly get the country on the right track. And hopefully both this podcast and our book will give people the ideas and the information and the systems to enable them to do it. So I want to thank you for joining me on Newt's World, Joe, and we will continue to work together. All right. Thanks. Thank you to my guest and good friend, Joe Gaylord. You can get a link to order our new book, March of the Majority, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment with a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.